Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. It's advertised and you hear it from your doctor. But what is preventative care anyway? Simply put, preventative care can help you stay healthy. Benefits of preventative health care. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust for 21 seasons. Hello and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, tonight's Prairie Doc host. Thank you for joining us as we continue our 21st season providing health information based on science, built on trust. Tonight's topic is highlighting the benefits of preventative health care. Joining us tonight on the campus of South Dakota State University and through Zoom are Dr. Mark List from Avera Medical Group 69th and Cliff and Dr. Lisa Brown from Monument Health Custer Clinic. Welcome, Mark and Lisa. If you wouldn't mind, Dr. List, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I'm a family practice doctor uh, from Sioux Falls. I've been practicing with Avera now at 69th and Cliff for about eight years. I do general family practice, but I focus a lot on sports medicine, geriatrics, and internal medicine, as well as preventative care. Excellent. Where are you from? I'm originally from Nebraska, uh, from a small town called Beamer, Nebraska, um, and went to medical school at uh, University of Nebraska Medicine uh, Medical Center, and then uh, residency here in Sioux Falls. And what brought you to South Dakota then? Uh, well, both of us are Augie grads, right. so go Augie go, um, and my wife's family is all from uh, South Dakota, so there's a strong family connection to us. Good, good. And one other Augie grad is Dr. Lisa Brown here with us. Lisa, if you would tell us a little bit about yourself too, please. I'm an original South Dakotan, born in Pierre, grew up in Miller, went to Oxfam, went to school at SDS, or USD, sorry, Stanford School of Medicine and then um, have done my residency in Sioux Falls at Sioux Falls Family Medicine uh, residency, practiced for a while in Hot Springs, did a little runaway to Tennessee for three years, and then moved back to Custer in 2008. And I'm part of a group of uh, family physicians here at Custer, and we serve in the clinic, in the ER, in the hospital. Um, and likewise, kind of we do full spectrum medicine and a lot of preventive care. Um, it's a retirement area, so a fair amount of geriatrics, but really heavily focused on wellness visits and preventive care so that we can capture things early. Excellent, excellent. And thank you both so much for joining us. And you know, the topic being preventive care, I got the preventative care experts right here, family docs, so that's, that's why. Uh, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. 
To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So Mark, what is preventative care? Uh, preventative care is really the backbone of all primary care uh, and family medicine in particular. It's preventing illness, preventing disease, preventing injuries before they start. And there's multiple facets to that. We're gonna, I know we're gonna talk a lot about that today, but some of those are cancer screenings, some of those are uh, non-cancer screenings, but health screenings, um, some are immunizations, and then there's all of the health and wellness aspects as well that just all aid in the overall health and well-being of patients. Which, what are you most passionate about as far as preventative care? I think the backbone of all medicine starts with health and wellness. Between diet, exercise, healthy lifestyle choices leads all patients on the best possible outcome for, a, for almost every portion of their health. Whether we're talking about cancer preven prevention, heart disease prevention, all of these things really stem from having a strong backbone of exercise, nutrition, and overall good lifestyle choices. Absolutely, excellent. And Lisa, how about you? What is your passion in preventative care? Well, uh, kind of really well-rounded like that. The Probably the lifestyle medicine piece is the most important to me, really coaching folks to uh, look at their day-to-day -day and see what it is that they could shift uh, so they, they can capture those things, better fitness activities, food choices that impact their health, um, getting good sleep, balancing work and life, like we struggle hard to do, uh, as well as then having uh, a good balance of social activities. All of these things are uh, you know, factors in wellness as people walk through their lives. What are uh, one or two concrete um, examples or recommendations you often find yourself giving to patients to help with their lifestyle choices? Well, every patient's different. You know, everybody's got different family obligations, work obligations, and really concretely asking them to look at how to put those into play. How do they work fitness into their lives? When do they go to work? When do they have time in the day for 15 to 30 minutes to themselves? Uh, how can they meal prep on the weekend you know, uh, for best food choices? Can they work with their family to make grocery plans so that they're not finding themselves in the wrong aisles at the grocery store? Really very specific things, and it comes down to kind of one-on-one -on -one coaching depending on what people need for information or identifying shifts they can make in their their day-to-day. -day. Absolutely, you know, it comes down to, to habits and, and planning. You know, if you can plan a meal, it's gonna be healthier than that last second eating out. If you can make some time for exercise, whether it's a 10 minute walk after a lunch or after work, that's an hour at the end of the week. I mean, are there some general specific things you found helpful when you're talking with patients? Well, I, I think that that's a great point that you really have to dive into that patient in front of you when you have them there because for a wide variety of factors. You know, I, I love to talk about exercise, I love to talk about getting up and moving, but for some patients, they might have that bad hip, right? They might have really terrible arthritis or some limitation. And you know, my normal workout idea of, hey, get up and move and go out, might be really unsafe or might actually harm that patient. And so taking into account the entire clinical picture of that patient, 
I think drives a lot of recommendations. And when it comes to diet, same thing. You can't take a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, you hear so much about certain diet plans and you know, there are benefits to low carbohydrate diets for some patients or uh, constant carbs or, uh, you know, Mediterranean diet, DASH diets. These all have great benefits, but if patients can't afford fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables or can't get to the grocery store, um, we really have to try to work specifically with that patient in terms of making better dietary choices. Uh, same thing applies when it comes to exercise. Again, uh, you know, not everyone can afford a gym membership. Some people don't have access to a gym in their community. They're 20 miles away from a nearest you know opportunity for exercise and so finding something that they can do not only based on their own limitations but also their surroundings I think by far is the best setup to allow for the best you know backbone of health and wellness for that patient yeah excellent uh, we've got some some questions coming in already here yet uh, this caller from Sioux Falls has noticed a prevalence of cancer in people who watch their diet and exercise daily why is cancer occurring in healthy individuals. Lisa, what would you say to that? Well, I, I mean, everybody's social group that they would know is can be a biased group of people. I mean, it's the people that you know that you might know these stories of cancer arising despite super great lifestyles. And we know that from a, a large data standpoint, if you look at the population as a whole, that making better choices for food choices, activity, managing weight, avoiding smoking, all of those things do go toward the lower cancer risk. Um, there are environmental factors that can happen in different places. If you have a population of folks who have been exposed to chemicals from industrial uh, plants, et cetera, sometimes you will see clusters. I'm not suggesting that's the answer to this person's question. But there's a lot of external factors besides how you take care of yourself, but you can only take care of what you have control over and that's yourself. So you should do the best job taking care of this body you're housed in um, from the get-go. And that's six months old nutrition all the way up through the end of your life. A absolutely. Of course, our parents are in charge of what we <laughs> eat when we're little. <laughs> well, but spe speaking of our parents, we get our genetics from our parents, and that's a, a yeah. risk factor too that that you know we don't have any control over as well. Which is one reason why we go look at family history when we're doing a preventative physical, and and how is that going to affect what we do, Mark? I think it's really important. You know, a key thing I I say to my patients all the time is, you can pick what you eat. You can pick how much you exercise, you can pick your job, you can pick your spouse. You can't pick who mom and dad are, right? And genetics play such a huge role. And the fact that humans, we just get cancer, right? I mean, the average woman has, you know, has a lifetime prevalence of breast cancer of about one in eight. And those aren't all, you know, those one out of eight aren't necessarily doing anything wrong. It's just normal human anatomy and physiology. That's just how we are made. And when we talk about lifestyle, when we talk about exercise, the goal isn't to prevent all cancers. The goal is to do the best that we can to reduce the risk as much as possible. So risk reduction. Just like I have patients that have smoked their whole life. I don't recommend my patients smoke, but I've got a 75-year-old who is healthy as a horse. He is, you know, no tumors, no COPD, smoked every day of his life. Does that mean that the smoking is okay for him? No, it's raising his risk factor for all types of illnesses, cancers, heart disease, strokes. But these things are all risk 
factors, whether they increase your risk or lower your risk, there is still a baseline risk. So that, that comment about young people getting cancer, cancers existed in young people since humans have been alive and will continue no matter you know all the advances in medical science. Yeah, yeah. One thing, I, I don't want to get statistic heavy in this, and I'm not going to show any slides, but as we have done a great job taking care of things that people historically died from, infections, um, right. farm accidents, whatever, so this larger proportion of us are living through and the things that we start seeing are cancers if you don't have cardiovascular and stroke risk at an early age, it is the thing that happens. Absolutely. We're not too many generations removed from a much higher infant mortality rate and yeah. children dying to prevent now vaccine preventable diseases in childhood. We now have a greater proportion of people living to adulthood. You know, we're going to see people get and die of more adult illnesses as you know, the numbers get bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent points. This says, if a caller got the shingle shot five years ago, does she need to get the second dose that was being recommended? Now, she might be referring to that older shingle shot, and then now the new one's been out uh, three, Probably four, five years, years, maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe she's referring to the yeah. new one. You know, what if you're supposed to get the, of the new shingle shot, you're supposed to get one, and then the second one two to six months later. What if it's over that six month, or what would you recommend? It's still okay, I'd always check with your doctor just to make sure we're not talking about the old shingles vaccine versus the new one. I still have people about five years ago that still were in that old wave. Uh, if we are talking about the old one or the new one, the new one is still beneficial. Even if you had that old vaccine, the, the new Shingrix vaccine does have a statistical benefit. And anybody who's had shingles will tell you a reduction of risk is really important with shingles. Sure, you might not die or be hospitalized. It is possible, but that risk reduction will save you a whole lot of, lot of pain and a lot of misery. Yeah, especially those cases that, you know, maybe the rash went away, but is the pain staying indefinitely? It's nice Absolutely. to prevent that in the first place. Uh, so that, that goes with another um, uh, a shingle shot question. Uh, this person asks, uh, should you con consider getting it before age 55? And um, you know, when do we recommend the, the, new, the shingle shot now, Lisa? Oh, you're gonna ask me that. I believe it starts at age 50, but that might have been reduced to 45. See, these are the things that I should have looked up specifics on. But the, you know, anybody who's ever had chicken pox, which of course, we vaccinate a lot of people now since uh, late 90s. Um, but anybody who ever had chickenpox is at risk and you definitely want to be getting that for risk reduction. The newest shingles vaccine is like a 95% reduction in risk for having a shingles case. And those prolonged cases are the misery um, that, that you wanna be preventing. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Age 50 is when I kind of recommend it um, to get the shingles vaccine. And there are a subset of patients, whether they're immunosuppressed or have other health conditions, you can certainly consider it. Um, and I have this conversation with high risk people in my clinic, but I think it's really an individual conversation to have with your doctor about your own personal medical conditions and what your medicines you're taking that might make you immunosuppressed and your risk for complications of shingles. Um, certainly getting the shingles vaccine is definitely recommended. And I think, uh, again, um, having it early, sometimes it's more of a matter of will my insurance pay for yeah. it? Because shingles, shingle shots can be quite expensive. And that's another thing we'll probably talk about tonight with some of these preventative healthcare topics. There's a lot of things that I would love to be able to offer to some patients, but 
certainly financial stewardship, financial resources can be a big hurdle for a lot of patients. And there are uh, some resources we'll talk about later that might help with those things. But I think as physicians, it's important that we have these conversations because cost is a big concern for people, especially on a, on a fixed budget. Yeah. yeah, great. Well, as we age, our bones can become fragile and susceptible to fractures. Individuals that have fragile bones could have what's called osteoporosis. And Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer learned more about it. Dr. Leah Prespo is the medical bone health director for Avera Health, and she helps with bone diseases like osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is a condition that um, causes you to have an easier time breaking bones than the average person would. So um, what we typically see is that osteoporosis isn't something you really have symptoms of until you end up with a break or a fracture. Osteoporosis is correlated with estrogen levels, and Dr. Prespo says women, specifically postmenopausal women, are more likely to develop it. Now, for women, when they go through menopause, we lose all of the estrogen or a lot of the, a lot of the estrogen that's available to us, and we see a steep decline in the bone mass right after that. However, men can develop osteoporosis too, as it can be genetic, along with how much calcium you got as a kid, as Dr. Prespo calls osteoporosis a silent disease, because you may not notice it until it's too late. So we call uh, fractures kind of two different ways, right? We talk about high trauma fractures and low trauma fractures. Now, high trauma fractures are things that, oh my gosh, you really should have broken that if you did that. Like you fall off a roof or you get hit by a car or kicked by a horse. Of course, we expect you to break bones in those circumstances. Those low trauma fractures happen when you really haven't done a whole lot to earn them, right? Maybe it's a cold, snowy day like today and you walk outside, slip and fall on the ice and break your wrist or your hip you know, those kinds of things. And once you develop osteoporosis, you have it for the rest of your life. To counteract this, there are medicines you can take along with a bone density study or DEXA scan to see if you have osteoporosis before you find out the hard way. And you go and lay on a table and it takes about 30 minutes from getting into the, to the place. They ask you some questions about your history again, because that's important for assessing risk. And, um, have you lay on a table, they take pictures of your hips, your spine, and sometimes your wrist, and that machine can analyze how dense those bones are, okay? And that gives us an idea of what that T-score is with that, uh, get, that will help us assess whether or not you have osteoporosis. She also recommends yearly checkups with your doctor and telling your family history of osteoporosis. If you have those kinds of individuals in your family history, important to tell your doctor about that because they may decide to screen you earlier with a bone density study for osteoporosis. However, Dr. Prespo says just because you have osteoporosis doesn't mean you still can't have fun and live your life. Now, I will tell you that I don't recommend taking up kickboxing to any of my patients with osteoporosis. So we really gonna wanna avoid those high impact things and just be careful and cautious about our risk of falling. But that certainly doesn't mean you can't continue to do the things that you love in most cases. Thank you, Dr. Prespo. And so, you know, one of the ways that we can help prevent or treat osteoporosis is, is vitamin D and, uh, and calcium. Um, 
what are some recommendations? You, there's a lot of questions about vitamins. In fact, Lisa, what are some recommendations you have for people on, you know, what you recommend them to take for vitamins? So if people don't have any type of dietary restrictions or they're not specifically eating a particular diet, they're well-rounded, they eat lots of fruits and vegetables, nuts, whole grains, meats, typically, and the data in the last couple of years is uh, advising to not use a multivitamin. Uh, from the calcium standpoint for bones though, the recommendation is to get around 1200 milligrams of calcium a day and dairy products each have 300 to slightly over 300 milligrams of calcium per dairy serving. And so you have to eat three or four dairies a day to get enough calcium for bone loss prevention. Uh, so through the adult years, people should be getting either three or four dairies a day or be taking some sort of calcium supplement. And we live at a latitude where we don't have a lot of sunshine year round. And for some of us who live in cooler spaces of the state, we don't have a lot of sunny days or warm enough days that you would have shorts and on and short sleeve shirts and have arms and legs out in the sun for vitamin D uh, production. Our skin makes vitamin D when it's exposed to the sun. And the fairer you are, the better you are at making vitamin D. And the more pigmented your skin is, the less good. And if you tan up quick, even if you're out all summer long, you might not make a lot of vitamin D. And so vitamin D supplementation at 1,000 uh, units daily for adults and 400 to 800 for kids is what's recommended for vitamin D. So that's kind of an across the board recommendation for calcium and vitamin D. Um, if you're a vegan diet, you would wanna be on B12 supplementation and maybe some other things, but that you would wanna do in consult with a nutritionist or your physician who is well informed about what your dietary particulars are. Yeah, say Mark. But the multivitamin know, thing is out if you eat well. Yeah, um, you know, certain diseases lead to certain medications which can cause some deficiency in vitamins. So what are some other diseases or medications that people should consider and think about taking something? It's really important as we get more and more into the bariatric surgery generations, there's a lot of people out there who have had a lot of surgery to their GI tract, and that can cause a whole lot of harm. And so it is something that after you've had a major bariatric surgery, surgery on your stomachs, surgery on your, whether it's a water absorption or small bowel surgery, I, I, think that, I, I think that you do need to have a keen interest in those cases to make sure that you aren't becoming nutrient deficient in some other ways. Um, I, I agree that for the average person without any complications, without any you know strong medication side effects um, that prevent absorption of anything, that multivitamin for most people, it's just basically making your urine more expensive. Most of the things in, in multivitamins are water soluble and if you've hit your multi, if you've hit your daily limit, it's basically just gonna filter out. So some people take it as kind of like a, you know, uh, a risk stopper just in case, but for most people, uh, eating a healthy diet is by far and away the better way to get your nutrients. And again, calcium and vitamins, uh, always the more preferred way when it comes from food. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, sometimes calcium pills can cause to build up of calcium in places we don't want, kidney stones or in our arteries, best absorbed in your diet. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this person says, what does a wellness exam consist of? How do you answer that, Lisa? Um, I tell them it's a visit for risk inventory, basically. 
um, you know, what do they have going on with their own personal history of health? What's in their family history? Um, what's their lifestyle look like that might be putting them at risk or preventing things? And then offering them the list of age appropriate screening recommendations for cancer prevention or other disease prevention along with immunizations. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, I think one of the major things about a wellness visit that gets overlooked is that first time you walk in the door and the nurse takes your blood pressure, I mean, how much, how many of us on a day-to-day -day basis, we would never be exposed to what our blood pressure is? I mean, that's just not something we ever get exposed to. And for a lot of people, getting that blood pressure check at that one time a year is the only time that patients might catch hypertension, which is absolutely a risk factor for so many issues, heart disease, stroke. And so a wellness visit, even if it's just checking in, checking your weight, right, uh, on a year, you know, our scale doesn't change, right? So it, it's something that you can definitely watch your weight, you can watch your blood pressure, even if you're not in the recommended lab, you know, part of a wellness exam in some age ranges is lab testing, right, for diabetes, for cholesterol issues. I, I, I love the comment about the fact that the wellness visit does change from patient to patient. If, you know, for example, there's many different guidelines about breast cancer screening and certainly high risk patients with family histories might be more appropriate to screen early. And so a one size fits all for a wellness visit doesn't make much sense. Um, I have patients that I don't spend any time talking about exercise because I know they exercise. They exercise more than I do. Mm -hmm. And yet there's other patients where I might spend a lot of my wellness visit really encouraging that exercise because that's going to do more for them than anything yeah. else I can talk about. Yeah. Does a, a physical exam wellness visit for a man have to include a finger test, a digital rectal exam. You know, back when we were both in med school era, that was everybody, when a man walked in for a physical, it wasn't a physical exam unless the pants got dropped and downstairs got checked out. And, and we know that there's a lot of things that we've done historically that don't necessarily pass the test of time. Statistically, they don't add any value. And so there are some, I still have partners that it's still part of what they do, right? And that's part of their wellness visit, just so they know that everything is feeling okay. But there's a whole, there's a whole other uh, wellness visit style, which is more about focusing on the things that matter, focusing on the things that statistically will help the patient, values the patient, not only their time, but also their own autonomy and their own privacy, in some cases, uh, of tests that might not benefit them. Lisa, for a woman, does a, every wellness visit, should it have a uh, breast exam and pelvic exam? So the data on that says no, right? So breast exam screening, um, or breast cancer screening is best done by mammography. It's way more sensitive. By the time you feel something clinically in the office or if a patient's found a lump at home, that's another issue. But for me to do a breast exam in the office, the data says it's not obviously nearly as good as the mammogram. And then pelvic exams, um, you know, the screening guidelines, and I think we're gonna see a little bit about that for pap testing. It used to be everybody got a pap and a pelvic every year and that isn't the recommendation. You, certainly there are reasons to do a pelvic exam to look at tissues and look uh, for other concerns, but the pap test isn't a yearly thing and that kind of drove the every year pelvic thing. So things have changed with that and that should be, again, an individualized conversation between you and your physician or provider who is offering you your wellness visit. 
Yeah, excellent. Uh, one quick answer, what is the difference between an annual physical and a wellness exam? Not much. I think just an, <laughs> it's insurance lingo. Sounds good, yep. Um, well, it's a lack of insurance education to the patients. I'm in a soapbox here for a minute. So <laughs> patients come in or they call in and they, they're coming in for their annual. Well, most of the time it means you're already seeing them for conditions and helping them manage their blood pressure, et cetera, and they need a refill on their medications. That is not a wellness visit. There's lots of time we spend talking about disease management that isn't wellness, and they really should be tackled as separate issues. You might do them in the same visit, but they really are separate pieces, and that's my soapbox. So, so if you show up with a list of 10 problems and symptoms that you've been having during your wellness exam, how do you handle that, Mark? So, uh, this is a great topic, especially for this this kind of this kind of um, uh, outlet, because even in my own clinic building, there are providers at, who, as docs, they say, "I am only talking about screening, immunizations, and wellness at this visit. Anything involving chronic diseases, we're going to come back and do." Right? In my world, I have a lot of patients that they might only get drug in by their spouse one time a year, right? So I try to make the, the most of that appointment and I try to cram everything in at once. My nurse might not like me, right? Because I'm trying to squeeze everything and make her job harder. But I, I think it really comes down to provider and patient discussion on what this visit is going to mean, right? Just making an appointment and just blindly showing up and thinking one totally different experience than what the doctor is gonna give you is gonna make you unhappy, it's gonna make the doctor unhappy. And so I think having that relationship and that communication is far more important than having a set like rule that we say, you know, that, that's yeah. the rule for everybody. Yeah, well that ties into- it, I think, can I, can I just expound on that? So my point being that patients, the insurance companies are not good at educating patients about how to access services. I've been here for 14 years in Custer. Pretty much all my patients get the whole schmear and I check and make sure they have their preventive cares and wellness stuff done every time I see them, even if I see them four times a year. And if they haven't had that wellness visit documented, um, I take time to do that, even if they're in for other reasons. I don't want anyone to think that when you go to your wellness visit that you shouldn't bring up things that are bothering you or yeah. that are new problems, because it is a risk inventory and looking at looking for things that would identify future problems is super important. Yeah. And so you should bring up concerns. That's why we do a review of systems. Um, now, not based on any billing reason, but asking about every organ system and if people have symptoms is a super important part of a wellness visit to me. Yeah, good point there. Um, one qu question from uh, someone on Facebook says they can tell that both of you care a lot about your patients. <laughs> and what role do relationships play in the medical profession between doctor and patient? This is why I love family medicine. This is why I could never be a specialist, right? I, I, I made the joke uh, before before the show started that I feel like half of my job is just like, I don't know, talking about Husker football sometimes and how bad we are at football, right? I mean, like, I think that developing that relationship, developing a knowledge of who that patient is and what their goals for their care are and what limitations they have and how their job or their family relationships uh, interplay with that, you know, I can have, I can talk about colonoscopies till I'm blue in the face. But if a patient says, doc, I'm never getting a colonoscopy and this is X, Y, and Z, that's a, that is the part of the conversation that we need to have, right? That relationship 
is what drives not only trust, but then also drives better decision-making. When it's not just a physician dictating the course of care, but when it's a cooperative agreement of, here are the pros and the cons, here's what maybe I, I recommend, but you know, having that respect of, well, I understand if we're gonna go a different direction, right? Absolutely, yeah, I, I think you hit it home there, and I saw Lisa nodding in agreement as, as well. Uh, cervical cancer is one of the most common cancers among women, and with early detection can often save lives. A Papanicolaou test, or a pap smear, is an effective way to spot cancer early. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer learned about this and more. Dr. Emily Abel is an OBGYN physician for Avera Health in Brookings, and she sees women for pap tests. A pap smear is a brush technique of collecting some cells from the cervix to be able to screen for cervical cancer or precancers of the cervix. As Dr. Abel said, they're important for catching precancerous or cancerous cells early. Because uh, when they are detected early, then we have treatments that we can use to get rid of it and uh, watch to make sure that it stays away. Um, uh, but if we are not doing them, uh, then we have the potential for a not nice cancer to creep up and cause us problems. She is talking about cervical cancer, which is the second most common cancer for women in middle to lower income countries. Dr. Abel says the past 10 years have changed for the procedure of pap smears. The shift has been from annual exams where we get pap smears uh, to uh, based on what the risk level is, uh, based on what the pap smear results are. So the ones that come back abnormal, then we increase the frequency of how often we get those pap smears. Um, and if everything continues to be low risk, uh, then we space those out um, accordingly to the guidelines. Dr. Abel says women start pap smears at the age of 21 and get checked around every three to five years, although some are checked yearly. They stop at 65 if everything is normal. So if someone has abnormal pap smears, then we may need to continue those further on past 65, but most people who have normal pap smears are able to stop at 65. Around age 30 is when OBGYN physicians, like Dr. Abel, check for HPV along with pap smears. She says HPV is the cause of cervical cancer, and a game changer that came around the mid-2000s is the Gardasil shot, which is a vaccine to HPV. Gardasil uh, protects against a number of different uh, HPV types that cause cervical cancer or uh, things that uh, predispose us to uh, cervical cancer. Um, and so uh, getting that vaccine helps prevent uh, people from getting uh, cervical dysplasia or abnormalities and precancers, um, as well as cervical cancer outright. She says the women who were in their 20s and early 30s should have gotten the shot in their teen years, but she says there is a way for women who haven't gotten the shot to catch up. If you didn't get it on time, then it's a three-dose shot. Um, so you get it uh, on whatever first day, and then two months later, and then uh, four months after that um, is the series that we do, um, and that should help protect. Men should also get the Gardasil shot, as Dr. Abel says HPV can cause other cancers like throat cancer, penile, and anile cancer. But for women, Dr. Abel says they should continue to get a pelvic exam during that break in between pap smears. 
Generally, I still recommend that uh, we do at least a pelvic exam to feel ovaries uh, because those uh, can creep up uh, on us uh, a little bit more insidiously and so uh, definitely want to be able to feel those as well. But um, as long as people are asymptomatic, uh, then we can wait until the recommended guidelines uh, say. Thank you, Dr. Abley. And so we had a question here asking about when a cutoff point for preventative care. You know, for cervical cancer screening for women now, we recommend stopping at age 65. And this says, uh, caller from personal experience, that age 85 is a cutoff point for doing preventative care. She says she feels doctors are not interested in doing preventative care as she reaches this age. And she's wondering our thoughts on this. Lisa, what would you say to this, this patient? that? Sounds like they're, they're maybe a little frustrated that as they get older, they're not getting some of their preventative care. So I, I think the issue is kind of reframing what people expect for wellness visits. Um, for women for decades, you know, until very recently, it's been, that means you get your well woman check. But there are lots of things as we've, some of them we've already discussed that go into wellness visits and, and as you age and you quit having as much risk for some of these things that if you don't have them by now you're never going to have them so we quit screening those particular things but there are still increasing risks for coronary disease stroke risk um, depression life changes that impact sleep uh, and and your ability to enjoy your life and part of our work is very particular disease process stuff and other of it is really about helping people have best quality of life possible. And that isn't always, you know, measuring things. It's, it, we might use a depression screen tool, but that's not a hard and fast, this is a lab test as you have it, that's what we do for screening. And those pieces that um, are more soft, I would say, but they're really important to quality of life are what should be being addressed at every wellness visit, and then you get to let go of those things that are no longer pertinent as you age. It, and so Mark, why would someone stop having colon cancer screening or breast cancer screening? Uh, I think the colorectal cancer screening guidelines actually say specifically in them that there's, a, there's usually a cutoff in terms of age, but really it talks about a 10 year expected, you know, 10 years of expected lifespan left. And look, doctors are terrible at predicting lifespan, but we all have patients who at age 65 might be more chronically ill and have a shorter life expectancy than some of our patients who are 85, right? Age is truly just a number when it comes to health. But I think this question also gets into something we haven't talked about. And the fact that some of these cancer screenings, some of the things that we do in healthcare have real risks, yeah. right? Getting a mammogram isn't as risk-free as some people think, right? The risk of a false positive, the risk of unnecessary biopsies. For men, prostate cancer screening, we specifically stop at a certain age because you are likely to die of something, anything else besides prostate cancer once you get to a certain age for men. And so I think the focus becomes you know, people think, oh, well, I'm not getting, I'm not getting a pap anymore. I'm not getting a mammo anymore. I'm not getting a colonoscopy anymore. My doctor doesn't care about me. Now they think I'm just ready to die. And 
I've got a lot of 85 year olds who I think will live to be over 100, right? But we then have to balance in, in medicine the risks of tests, right? Uh, even as good as our tests are, they carry risk. Colonoscopies, I preach getting a colonoscopy you know, from every day, basically, of my entire career, but they have risks. And I think that it's important to know that it's not that we don't care about our patients at a, after age 55. We're shifting our health and wellness, our exercise and diet focus on making your quality of life as good as possible, not necessarily finding every single possible cancer that might not kill you for the next 15 years, but the treatment might kill you. Right, yeah. The surgery, the chemo, the, chemo, the might be yeah. way harder than you than just having an indolent, slow-growing cancer in the breast for the next 15 years. So again, I think that shift and age is more about risks versus harms, not so much about I'm too old to get preventative care. Yeah, and exploring some of these other risk factors that increase as you get older, falling, and what can we do to prevent that? Yeah. Or memory issues. Pneumonia. Or, or problems from medications you're taking. Should you be on that aspirin? What do you recommend for aspirin, by the way? Great question. It seems like the, the, the studies change year after year. So, you know, it was everyone, every all adults should have it for stroke and heart attack prevention. Then it was, well, maybe not. Now it's not for anybody except maybe the highest risk people who have never had a heart attack or a stroke. Maybe there's some colon cancer prevention. Again, I think if you have a super high risk, for heart attack, for stroke, that's a conversation to have. Uh, diabetics, obviously super high risk. There are definitely, it's patient by patient decision to have the aspirin conversation and less about just a general age or, or, or general uh, agree or, or disagree. Uh, say, Lisa, uh, are, this person's asked about taking probiotics. Are there any benefits from taking probiotics? So that's a really interesting question, and it could open like a whole other episode, <laughs> yeah. probably. Um, so certainly, we know that when people are treated with the antibiotic and we kill off good gut flora, that it maybe increases risks for other things. I mean, certainly people have had experience with diarrhea, but, but for patients who carry a particular kind of bacteria called Clostridium difficile that makes a toxin, when you kill off everything else, it's like, you know, killing all your good plants in your garden and having a bunch of thistle. It's patients who take probiotics with their antibiotic are less at risk for that. Um, there's a good reason to, again, a whole other topic, avoid antibiotics unless absolutely necessary. But probiotics and gut health are also a very interesting wellness conversation in that it appears, uh, per lots of studies, that the, your gut bacteria play a super important role in everything else in your body. Um, and this comes through what the bacteria in your gut do for your gut lining and health and how that plays a role in another episode topic, your endocannabinoid system. Uh, because they, there's data that shows that depending on your gut microbiome, you might be more at risk for depression, diabetes, obesity, and shifting that gut health is super important. Probiotics might be able to do that. Probably eating a super healthy diet of high plant material, including vegetables and fruits is more effective even than that. But I don't think anybody would tell someone not to take probiotics if they wanted to be using them. Sure, yeah. 
Uh, Mark, you alluded to uh, some risks with healthcare, and this person asks, has two friends who developed Guillain-Barre syndrome after the shingles vaccine. Is there correlation between the two? Yeah, uh, to my knowledge, almost every vaccine has a chance to cause Guillain-Barre. Uh, I am and a, what is Guillain-Barre? Guillain-Barre, right. uh, a neurological condition uh, that causes uh, paralysis, usually starting from, or numbness and tingling, neurological symptoms basically affecting uh, the feet all going on an upwards direction. Uh, it can absolutely happen after flu vaccines, after childhood immunizations, after COVID vaccines, after pneumonia, after shingles vaccines. Um, I am as big of a fan of immunizations as there is, but they carry risks. And so just like we talk about all kinds of things. In general, immunizations, the benefits far outweigh the risks, at least the childhood immunizations and a lot of the shingles vaccinations. The risk, sh people that get shingles have terrible neurological side effects, uh, can have cases of blindness, can get secondary pneumonias, can have hospitalizations, can have long-term and sometimes permanent neurological deficits just from shingles. So again, when, when I talk about vaccinating for shingles, it's about the risks of the vaccine, which include very rare but very real side effects and more common side effects, you know, feeling like garbage for two days, three days, uh, muscle aches, local site reactions, et cetera, and the real risks of developing shingles. So again, really important to know the risks and benefits of things before you jump into them. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, in just a, a minute or two, what, are, what is a final thought or final recommendation for our viewers? Oh, I, I would make sure that you understand if you have an insurance coverage for wellness visits, that your wellness visit is covered 100%, no deductible, no copay. And by and large, but probably not all, of some of these things that we've talked about are covered 100% also by your wellness prevention coverage through your insurance. For those that do not have insurance coverage for wellness, and there are certainly people that that exists for, you know, looking into community wellness opportunities through lab screenings or health fairs is super important. There are programs like All Women Count where it's CDC money, the state administers it, and that's for female breast and cervical cancer screening. And there are programs like Walking Forward that are for lung cancer screening for people without insurance. Um, there's lots of opportunity to get your wellness visits, and you should take advantage of it. Excellent, excellent. And Mark, your thoughts in a minute or two here. I, I think the one topic that we did not talk about tonight, well, a little bit, but is the importance of finding a primary care provider. All of this preventative medicine talk, all of these cancer screens, immunizations, the risks and the benefits, uh, you know, all of the things we talk about, the pillars of health, exercise and diet, you have to find a primary care provider that you can trust, that you can find and develop a relationship with, that you can come to an agreement. That way you understand where they are coming from and they understand where you are coming from. That solves so many issues when it comes to uh, miscommunication, uh, feeling like I'm unable to ask questions, uh, you know, feeling disrespected. I think it's incredibly, incredibly important. And I have patients who see me and we don't hit it off, right? And they end up going to see one of my partners. And as a primary care physician, I'd rather you leave me and find somebody who you can trust and who you have a good relationship with yeah. than it is just to stick with me for, you know, for longevity's sake or for consistency's sake. So I think the most important thing I can ask the listeners is to have a primary care physician, 
get a yearly wellness and if that's all that is is checking blood pressure and checking your weight and having a conversation about your exercise and diet great but then having that person that you can trust yeah and the only other thing I'd add just because I still have a few more seconds is is that if there's uh, a test that you just and you kind of mentioned this earlier there's a test that you don't want to do you don't want to do a colonoscopy or you don't want a, a pap smear or a pelvic exam or a, br a breast exam or whatever, whatever is keeping you from going to the doctor, just tell your doctor that and, and, and communicate and have that relationship. But please still come in because there's many other important things that we'd love to cover. And even we talked a lot about colonoscopies, right? Uh, only 70-something percent, 60% of the people in the state get a colonoscopy, and yet colon cancer is a huge driver of death and morbidity in this state. And yet there are other things. If you don't want to get a colonoscopy, we now have stool-based tests. And yeah. so coming yeah. to the doctor and yeah, excellent. excellent. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things to be done. Thank you. The winner of our prize tonight is Marilyn from Westington Springs. Thank you, Marilyn, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Based on science built on trust, Grab a copy of your local newspaper to read the Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Over 130 newspapers in the region carry the article. Ask your local paper if they print Prairie Doc today. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive columns. Recently, I received a mailing from my clinic reminding me it is time to schedule my annual preventative care physical. Apparently, doctors need to go to the doctor too, even when they feel fine. As a primary care physician, one of my passions is preventative care. Preventative care is focused on catching problems before they even start to cause symptoms, catching issues early when they are easier to treat. Whether you want to call it your annual physical, your yearly checkup, or an annual wellness visit, this appointment gives the time for you and your provider to decide what tests, screenings, and interventions may be done to help you become and stay more healthy. One of the broken aspects of our healthcare system is our focus on problems, playing whack-a-mole, barely getting ahead, and spending too much money way too late on problems that could have been cured a lot sooner a lot cheaper with a little bit of effort at prevention. This visit may go in a variety of ways depending on your age and risk factors. If you are over age 45, you should probably consider your options for colon cancer screening. If you are a woman over age 40, perhaps you should consider breast cancer screening. If you are a man over age 55, perhaps you should consider prostate cancer screening. Any of these screenings may need to start earlier if you have a family history of cancer. Meanwhile, the visit should probably include a discussion on your mental health, your diet, and your exercise routines. Granted, these discussions take time. If you have a list of problems and symptoms you want to discuss, then perhaps you may need a separate visit to address your concerns apart from the appointment to cover some of these preventative care topics. Perhaps this visit will help give you a nudge to quit smoking and a chance to catch lung cancer early by scheduling a screening CT scan of your lungs. Perhaps this visit will determine that you have high blood pressure or high cholesterol and interventions could decrease your risk of a heart attack or stroke. Perhaps this visit will catch skin cancer early. 
Perhaps your provider will identify a medication you do not need anymore or identify an over-the-counter medication or supplement you should or should not be taking, such as vitamin D or aspirin. Are you taking your medications correctly? The list goes on and on. Pap smears for cervical cancer screening, reviewing your immunizations and updating a tetanus shot. DEXA scans help determine the strength of your bones and catch osteoporosis, trying to decrease your risk of a fall and a hip fracture. I suppose I better make that appointment for myself. Thank you to our guests, Dr. List and Dr. Brown, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about preventative care. I think we had an excellent discussion. If you would like to see and hear more episodes, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. And what else is essential for overall health? Sleep. A good night's rest is rare for those suffering from sleep apnea. Diagnosis and management of sleep apnea. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc. Based on science, built on trust. Join us in supporting the Prairie Docs as we enter our 21st season. Hello, my name is Dave Heink, and I serve on the volunteer board of the Healing Words Foundation a 501c3 charity that secures funding for Prairie Doc programming. This past year, we celebrated 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information from our four Prairie Docs, each of whom volunteers their time to answer important health questions. Thank you to our viewers who continue to help make this programming possible. You are making a difference for public health information in our state. Your donation allows us to continue to deliver on Rick and Joni Holmes' mission, set out over two decades ago. As a friend, supporter, and volunteer for this organization, I believe in its mission, and I know the vital impact it makes in our communities. Please continue to follow us on social media, on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and YouTube. If you're so inclined, you may make a donation online at prairiedoc.org. Prefer not to donate online? Reach out to us via email and our staff will send you a pledge form. Thanks again for supporting our mission and Prairie Doc programming. Medical information based on science, built on trust. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by at Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information.
And with ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Tell Communications.